0: of University of Southampton World Menopause Day podcast 2023 we spoke to the government's new menopause star Helen Tomlinson. Helen will drive awareness of issues surrounding menopause and work whilst promoting the benefits for businesses and the economy when women are supported to stay in work and progress. Helen welcome to University of Southampton World Menopause Day podcast.
1: Thank you very much it's an absolute pleasure to be here.
2: Okay Helen so your first question is can you tell us um how did you become interested in the menopause and women's issues
1: um i think it was it was circumstance really probably born a little bit out of my personal experience although i don't think i realized when i was going through my personal experience of perimenopause that actually that's that's what it was um so i had a a hysterectomy went in 2015 when i was 45 and i had that because i was suffering from really really heavy erratic and debilitating uh, menstrual cycle periods and um uh, i was found it really challenging i went to see a gynecologist and i said you need to give me a hysterectomy and it still took 2 years to get her to agree to give me a hysterectomy and there were times when I was on the pill I had the injection and I had the coil all at the same time so as you can imagine hormonally it was fairly a fairly challenging time Um, and that kind of that happened in 2015 and then in 2022 I joined the ADECO group and I joined the gender forum just before World Menopause Day and we were talking about what we would do for World Menopause Day and they wanted somebody to lead on it. And I looked around the virtual room and I said, I'm probably the only person who's got any experience or understanding, so I'll take that. And it genuinely just snowballed from there. Um, I feel really lucky that I'm in an organisation where – um the the conversation has been really open really well received um and then it kind of evolved and moved on to working with our clients and ultimately now to support you know organizations up and down the UK and Ireland that maybe don't have that education allyship and cultural environment where it is okay to talk about what you need to be able to be your absolute best in your role
0: yeah and I, I, I- I think it's really good. I can tell the difference between last year's conversations that we had for this podcast Mm -hmm. and this and that first opening response, because there's something very, very structured happening now about it rather than, you know, although the celebrity promotion has been really, really welcome and, you know, um, I think someone said I said to someone in my last podcast uh, someone said oh I menopause and someone said to them oh we're very posh you know <laughs>
1: yeah. like, and that is exactly it i mean that yeah. the divina effect as we call it has been incredible because of her reach her social media presence however there was a real risk of it becoming a white middle class privilege to have a menopause so the government strategy now is Ensuring and, you know, I think bringing in, I'd like to say, a normal person to, to lead on it, I think is really important because it, what I'm bringing in looks at intersection through a lens of intersectionality and making sure that it's for everybody everywhere, regardless of race, background, socioeconomic, demographic, and that reaching people in organizations that maybe the celebrity effect couldn't reach because they couldn't relate to it
0: I, I love that and I love that you come across as a normal woman and before we started recording you were telling us about someone recognized you in St Pancras uh, station and because of who you are and how normally you are you thought they were maybe going to whip your handbag or something but they actually saw you on telly about the menopause <laughs> so well, yeah so important um to have normal people um driving these conversations so what have you been tasked to do in your new role as women's menopause champion and I, I see the word czar
1: um what's good what is your role so my role is it's the government menopause employment champion and the role was recommended by um the over 50, the 50 plus champions who are a group of organisations that came together, um, backed by DWP, looking at how um, over 50s in the workplace or coming back into the workplace could be better supported. One of the rec- recommendations was having a menopause champion. There is an over 50s champion already, um, a gentleman called Andy Briggs, um, but they wanted a specific menopause employment champion. At the same time, the Women and Equality Select Committee also made a list of recommendations to government. And again, one of those was to have a specific menopause employment champion. So I was appointed in the role in March of this year and asked to look at how We ensured that all businesses shared best practice. So we know that some large organizations are doing some incredible stuff. And I've spoken to over 90 organizations that are really doing the whole policy launch, guidelines, training, menopause cafes, allyship programs, guides, safe spaces, psychological safety aspect of it pre-menstrual products, all of those brilliant things. And I'm seeing that Time and time again in large organisations, but large organisations don't make up the majority of the UK workforce. It's SMEs, and three fifths of people work in SMEs, small to medium enterprises. And the challenge with that is you may not have the budget to go out and, you know, the HR budget to go out and get that information, or um, you may not have a a menopause champion. The organisation might be too small. The employee might. Not having anybody to talk to, so it's I've got a four-point plan that I've just created and we launched this week. The first aspect of of that is best practice sharing. So on the government's Help to Grow portal, which is a, a portal specifically for employers and em- employers to help to attract and retain staff in their organization we will house best practice across multiple sectors so we're working with five specific sectors they are retail manufacturing professional and technical care and hospitality um and I've got a sixth sector which is very uh, a real passion of mine it's the education sector and I feel really strongly that women who are working, In well, anybody who is working in a teaching environment that is impacted by menopause can find it really challenging uh, simply because it's one of those non autonomous roles where you can't just think, I'm not going to go in today, I'm going to work from home, or I'm just going to dial it back a little bit. When you're in the classroom, you're in the classroom, and in primary education, 98% of the staff are uh, female. So there's the five specific sectors that we're working with, and we will share best practice between large organisations uh, and put it on the portal, along with podcasts, case studies, links to free resource. Everything on there will be free because it's for every woman everywhere. So that's the education aspect of it. And at the kickoff on Wednesday, we had some brilliant employers saying we are really happy to share what we've done in our, as an example, large hotel chain for the benefit of people who work in small hotels, you know, small independent hotels, so they can access that best practice. The second part of it is a national allyship programme. I've spoken to far too many women who felt they'd nobody to talk to, and men, because it's not just a women's problem, it's a human problem, because we need to consider how, you know, men, whether they be partners or, you know, relatives, etc., who can be impacted by the symptoms of menopause that they're experiencing in the home that might impact on their work. And I'll give you an example of that shortly. But the allyship programme, so everybody has got somebody to talk to. So again, the example of a small hotel, if I work in a small hotel, all my colleagues are either you know, younger than me, male or, or whatever, they just don't understand for whatever reason, I can be partnered up with somebody in a large hotel chain who are doing some really good work and they I've got somebody to talk to. So it's a voluntary national allyship programme. The third aspect of it is the menopause pledge to encourage women to make smart choices about who they choose as an employer and also the 630,000 women who are currently claiming universal credit between the ages of 45 and 55. I've worked in the employability sector, I know that there are barriers to returning to work if you've been out of work for a period of time. And I don't want perimenopause or menopause to be another barrier to women coming back into the workplace. And the last part of it is an amplification programme. So I'm working with some really key organisations who've said, You are just one person, we need to help you to get the message out there, which is incredible. So working with Charter Management Institute, CIPD, the wellbeing of women. ACAS, DWP and the British Standards Institute to get that messaging to as many employers and employees in the country as we can.
0: Wow, that's so many actions in in such a short space of time. It's (laughs) phenomenal. I mean, my next question is, is directly linked towards the Menopause and the Workplace place and Inquiry report from 2022 and last year I interviewed Caroline Noakes MP for uh, Southampton and North is it Romsey yeah and um, I- I'm wondering what's happened at a government level since then
1: well, I think the, the main thing that government have done is is made the appointment and going out and starting to talk to employers and sharing that best practice in order to really be able to help smaller organisations, encourage them to um, develop policy, develop guidelines. And one of the things that I'm really focused on is actually broadening out the conversation and not just making it about uh, menopause in the workplace. Because what what I found from, from my experience is that just attracts um, an audience or an allyship of predominantly over 40s there's five demographics in the workplace at the moment opening up the conversation about women's health menstrual health um endometriosis uh, pmd fertility all of those things that um a woman can experience throughout her career is really, really important to open up the conversation. Because what that does is it creates allyship at every stage of the uh, of the cycle. Um, women are leaving leadership roles at the fastest rate ever, and they're not being replaced by other women, which is an issue. And if we are to retain women in the workforce, we're having to work longer. Women over 50 are the fastest growing demographic, but they're not seeing the opportunity to stay, go into those leadership levels or a desire to stay in those leadership levels. And perimenopause and menopause is a reason why. It's such a good
0: point you make that menopause has been, it's great, yeah, that it's kind of been a bit stigmatized but it's still been seen as a standalone issue when it's actually um a one of many women's
1: health issues and is that because we're we're older do you think it's because it's well I think it's partly a generational thing because you know if you think back in history it it's not that many it's not that many Millennials ago, that we didn't live long enough to go through menopause. So, you know, the the a the average life expectancy has grown incrementally. The first person who will live to 150 has now been born. So, if you think about that, you eventually, in the not too distant future, you will have longer time post menopause than you did. Pre-menopause. so you also think about the number of women in employment versus a previous generation so my mum found finds it out astounding that I'm having these conversations because her view was we just got on with it they did just get on with it but she didn't have to go to work she didn't have to show up every day and you know a lot generationally a lot of women chose not to work or you know have a broad term career. And, you know, I'm really passionate that this is for everybody, whatever type of job they've they've got, whether it's a non-autonomous role where you have to show up or it's a leadership role where you can have some autonomy. There is still symptoms that impact on you. They might be different, but there are still the symptoms. But I think the reason that we're talking about it now is because we're probably the first generation that actually you know, we we thought we could have it all. And that was, you know, growing up, And that was the mantra that you grew up in, wasn't it? It was the Bridget Jones era where you absolutely can have it all. Um, And I think that's almost why we're talking about it more now. Um, But even when I started just talking about menopause in the workplace, we never even talked about perimenopause. It was like menopause, the average age of menopause is 51. And actually, all that all the symptoms can happen. The average age of perimenopause is 41. So, which is why, you know, it's broadening it out all the time. So, and that's a really positive thing, I think.
2: Yeah. Um, Helen, I, I do think, um, like what you said about talking about menopause, not just menopause, but as a collective of um, these uh, times in women's lives and um, situations that we find ourselves in because um I had endometriosis and my employer no one out of about 30 staff actually knew what endometriosis was yeah. so when I had my oophorectomy, I was just thrown into menopause and I didn't you know I didn't even get a chance for a run-up it was just wham there mm-hmm. you go have it um yep. I do think it's really important to talk about um all of it and not just menopause because mm-hmm. um there is with more women um Experiencing these difficulties, or you know, with healthcare changing and more women being looked into with issues that we have, that there are younger women, a lot younger than 40, who may be going through yeah. menopause and because you know, mm-hmm. induced or, or what. So, um, well done for that. Um, and yet yeah, you give such far answers, but I think you've literally answered nearly all of these questions we're going to give you in that second one you did there. Um, but, um, so the next question I was going to ask, which you did. C- You did kind of go over because I wanted to know about, you know, how are you going to ensure that UK and Ireland, as I heard you say earlier, businesses, that these employers adopt a menopause policy? Um, And whilst you say um, that, you know, you're doing all of these big campaigns and we've got media, um, etc. But for those really tiny weeny businesses that really aren't having that exposure to menopause, how are you going to ensure that you reach those and that they adopt this policy and also that it extends into the industries where it is predominantly men so they might not be thinking about this
1: yeah absolutely it's a really good question and i will go back into it in more more detail so i think the first part of it and i just to touch on your 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 personal circumstance and your experience i think the introduction of the british standards institute um, institute standard that came out a couple of months ago is really important it's called menstrual health menstruation and menopause in the workplace so that beautifully opened it right out to be able to broaden that conversation and get guidance on the whole life cycle so i think that's a really powerful step and you know the the, there are other aspects of women's health that are having more of it and you know we can't get away from the fact that if it's on mainstream media or if it's mainstream television it gets more attention and I know um, my cultural reference here is probably quite unique but I watch Emmerdale because I'm from Yorkshire and there is a storyline in Emmerdale at the moment where a young girl's got uh, PMDD and she's considering having a hysterectomy at, at 14 and that is just raising awareness isn't it that it can happen and that would put her into surgical menopause and that so it can happen at a much younger age and I think that highlighting that is really important. In terms of policy so we know from the CIPD survey that they've just redone that the numbers have grown uh, significantly in terms of the number of organisations that have a policy. It's under embargo at the moment, so I can't tell you what it is, but it has grown significantly from the last time they did the survey back in, I think it was 2019. However, having a policy is It's a really great thing. And when we launched our policy in the ADECO group, I genuinely thought I deserved a big pat on the back for doing that. What I now know is that that was literally the start of the conversations and the actions that have changed the culture of the organisation. So a policy on its own will not make the difference in an organization, large or small. It's it's the action that you take, the education, the allyship, and that creates that cultural change that will make it a better place to work. I personally feel now if somebody came to me and said, Can we see our menopause policy, I would think that I'd failed hugely because you only go for a policy when you've run out of options or you're not getting what what you want. So I do believe policy is incredibly important, but I certainly don't think that it is the be all and end all. It's a catalyst for change more often than not. So, and again, we, we now call it our women's health policy so that we can have guidelines and guiding principles for different aspects of women's health. And I I now, again, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. I now encourage employers to have a women's health policy so that they can create multiple guidelines for different topics. Um, In terms of how we will engage with smaller businesses, that is the absolute purpose of the four-point plan that the menopause employment champion role has has devised and will um implement over the next 18 months the whole purpose of that is to raise awareness in smaller organizations and educate and provide allyship because if we're empowering women to start the conversation and men to start the conversation because I've just I'm at a manufacturing employer today and it's been a really interesting conversation around it's not just, you know, they have colleagues who come to work who haven't slept because their wife hasn't slept. So should they be using machinery? You know, should you be driving a, a bus if you had a full night's sleep? Should you, you know, be flying a plane or whatever? And it's that psychological safety to be able to say, I'm not okay today. And because of this, so that whole, that's why one of the areas that we're focusing on is manufacturing, because like it or not, it tends to be predominantly um, a, a male dominated environment. So it's not just the, the changes and the support for the People who are actually have it going through the experience, whilst that's incredibly important, we've evolved and we're now looking at how we can support everybody that it may impact. So real, you know, it's constantly evolving. So that, that's one of the ways. But the whole purpose of that strategy is to support everybody who is experiencing, whether themselves or vicariously, the symptoms of, of perimenopause and menopause.
0: The more we talk about this issue, the more kind of stigmatised subject matter comes to light. So the fact that, Mm -hmm. you know, my husband would be applauding, you know, because yes he hasn't slept properly for years.
1: Next week it's um, National Inclusion Week and I'm hosting um, a lunchtime session our inclusion brunch I'm hosting that around um, uh, midlife sobriety and the impact of alcohol on menopause and the whole just going back to that having it all culture you know uh, when I started work it was perfectly you know normal to go out It was a, we were the first generation to go out in the same way that men went out and almost you know you had to prove that you could drink like a man and you know so and so on and so on and now actually going through perimenopause and menopause the effects of alcohol on symptoms are a phenomenal anxiety <laughs> insomnia all of those and just eliminating it or completely eradicating it altogether has made such a big difference but you, it sounds obvious doesn't it but you a lot of the time you don't put two and two together so there is so much intersectionality to talk about absolutely okay um
0: so helen why does it make good business sense to keep
1: menopausal women in work, thriving and progressing. So there are a lot of studies done around um, why it's important to keep um, women in the workplace who are going through menopause. Henpicked um, have done an exceptional study, which really sings to the, the FDs in the room because of the financial impact um, of women leaving the workplace. But I think from more of a cultural perspective, it is about um, that. And this you can relate to this, Chanel, from your role, that it's about um, attracting um, younger women into the workplace and um, seeing that they can progress and if you can't see it you can't be it so if we're not retaining women in roles. um, It's not attracting people to come into those workplaces. There's the, you know, the knowledge, the experience, the mentorship, and uh, there's the uh, pension aspect of it. So I've spoken to a lot of women who've taken a lesser role or gone part time or changed careers to a less demanding career because they felt they've got no choice. And that impacts not only on their current salary, but their future pension pot as well, which is really, you know, really important. Women tend to live longer than men as well, so they've got to eat their pension out longer. So it's it, it's really, you know, it's important for a number of reasons. But yes, keeping that mentorship, that experience in the workplace is very, very important.
0: It makes sense, doesn't it? And I think it also links to the mental health piece of, you know, women are at a disadvantage in this world on many levels mm-hmm. and the message of being told that we're valued and, and to maintain our self-esteem as well that can impact on our mental health. Of
1: course it can and that's what I, I do talk quite a lot about the the types of symptoms so the two main types of symptoms the practical symptoms and the psychological symptoms and also that the three broad types of roles. So the completely autonomous roles, the semi-autonomous roles and the non-autonomous roles. And what you tend to find is the non-autonomous roles tend to be the Less senior roles and often the more frontline roles. So, the practical symptoms are really important in those non autonomous roles because you've got no choice but to show up. So, how do you manage that? And how do you start the conversation that says, you know, I never had to say to, to my manager, I can't come into work today because I'm, I daredn't stand up, let alone come into work, because I had total autonomy in my job to make my own appointments and all of that sort of stuff but if I'd been a teacher or a nurse or worked in a call centre or any frontline role I wouldn't have had that autonomy but the symptoms that I did have were more the psychological as well as those practical ones which I could manage which was fine but the psychological symptoms of can I still this you know am I still at the top of my game can I stand up in front of employers and talk and and that is that's why a lot of women leave the leadership roles because they the anxiety the loss of confidence and the insomnia plays into all of that Um, and that's that's when women start to think actually I'm just gonna take a step back or take a step down or step out altogether and there is absolutely no need to do that.
2: So how can line managers um, and employers support women in the meantime while they wait for policies to be implemented at top level? Now, I appreciate what you're saying earlier about it's not just about having the policy, but, you know, um, when it comes to changes being made especially in larger organizations sometimes mm-hmm. they're not that quick to act i can tell you that um the university of signed signed the menopause pledge um, and we have lots mm-hmm. of networks or safe spaces and all of that but don't yet have a policy now from me i would feel much more safer in using policy guidelines mm-hmm if I didn't want to come into work, if, or something like that, you know, to say, well, we have a policy on this, you're supposed to be support me, I'm allowed to do this. So I think it's really important that we do have these policies. So in the meantime, mm. what can managers be doing to support their employees?
1: Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot already, uh, which is is great, University of Southampton. However, I think that, top line leadership is really important. And getting that leadership buy-in is by far the most important thing in an organisation. Sometimes any movement, campaign, initiative, whatever you want to call it, starts bottom up, it starts with the people. But getting that top line leadership, that's what makes it happen and embeds it in the organisation. So I would say that is really important. We did that before we launched our, our policy, because I didn't feel like I could just get up on World Menopause Day and launch a policy and hope for the best. We did a series of podcasts with leaders talking about their experiences. So I had the vice president of ADECO, talking about the fact that she often went into a meeting and really struggled with brain fog, couldn't remember the word. She'd worried whether she'd still got the the confidence to do this job um I the VP of HR talked about her endometriosis and how that had impacted on her when she was just starting out in a career and then how that translated and went into perimenopause I talked about my experiences which I've been always been really honest about in order to help other people um, but getting that leadership buy-in is so important Training, mandatory training. Another lesson learned for me I didn't make it mandatory training. I had two men on my first uh, manager's. Call. first one had dialed into the wrong call and was too embarrassed to dial off but now we mandate the training colleague guidebooks safe spaces men only sessions because I've found that men are the best allies and just having them around the table and that what they've said to me is we want to support we want to be an ally we want to better understand we need to understand because actually it's impacting on us as well but we're scared of saying the wrong thing. So can we have a session where we feel psychologically safe and we feel empowered to have the conversation? And I think that's really important as well.
0: OK, so, Helen, how how can women be supported when tackling many of the practical problems of trying to access the services they need? And we all know that battle, don't we, um, uh-huh. to optimise their uh, health and well-being?
1: So one of the things that we've used is a symptom tracker. And there are lots, there's a free app, Balance app, which Dr. Louise Newsome um, created through her Balance company and um, that is entirely free and it allows you to track your symptoms there are lots of different ones we at work we had a a paper one really so you could just literally look at it and think I've got that I've got that I've got that or I I used to have that and then I've got this because it changes over time and what I suggest is you use that to start the conversation either with your line manager with your partner or with your GP because sometimes you just need a little romped or going into a jig it can be a little bit you know white white coat syndrome isn't it not that they wear a white coat anymore but um but it makes you feel a little bit on the back foot they're an expert I'm not even though we all google everything now and make ourselves experts. but I found going in and being able to say I've got this symptom I've got this symptom I've got this symptom really helped to frame the conversation and you know you can get um a private appointment and then they will do you a letter that you can take to your gp but i would say that having that information and going forearmed and not oh, i think i could be a blah, actually going with that information is a really good conversation starter
0: that's so helpful actually i'm going to uh, download that
2: i think i've had a look at one of those apps actually but um i feel that i'm it's... quite, quite way in with my menopause Mm -hmm. uh know-how now to kind of like i don't need an app i know you know i've been my gp has been ever so supportive and i think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that actually helps women uh make it is having supportive um gps and you know Mm -hmm. in our networks and our safe spaces we we hear time and time again from women who don't have supportive GPs yeah. which I, I really yeah. feel for them Um, and you know this why we reach out to them and say if you want to have a chat afterwards Absolutely. that I think it's important that they know like you say that they've got allies and and to kind mm. of reinforce that actually you no know, go back to your GP and say I yeah. want this you need to do this or I'm experiencing yeah. this please refer me for this etc but yeah
1: the average, the average number of times a woman needs to go to a GP before she gets a satisfactory or something that works for her is three, which knowing how hard it is to get a GP appointment, that's not ideal. But also when we launched our, po- well, we started the podcast and then subsequently launched our policy. One of the things that happened was a number of colleagues at what the podcast did was allow people to sort of think, oh, I've got that. Or, you know, I can talk about my experiences. And a few people came forward and said, I'm around antidepressants and actually i think i really should be on hrt and it was phenomenal the way that that changed for them just by having that information and being able to go see their gp
2: okay so um i know we've kind of touched on this earlier as well but um what do you think or or what advice would you say to give to so that we can have a positive health culture towards menopause and then steer away from individuals um, and you know that it's a taboo subject like you said that it's just middle-aged women and it's your problem but actually it's it's about creating more awareness so um how can we how can we better ourselves to to have that
1: I think broad, broadening the conversation. Some of people, uh, people often ask me, what is your hope for the future? And I say that my daughter will never be going to sessions like this because she will never need to, because it will just be part and parcel of what happens to 51 um, percent of the population in midlife as part of their longer career and by the time my daughter is well she's 24 now but I imagine she'll work till at least she's 70 so there's a long you know the retirement age is 68 now isn't it so you know it's only going to go one way um so I do hope that we're not having because it just becomes normal it's not a taboo so I think broadening out that conversation about women's health is, is Absolutely, the next step, and also focusing it on the intersectionality, because I agree that it's not about individuals, but in some ways it absolutely is about individuals because everybody's experience is entirely their own experience, so I think that's really important to remember and Notwithstanding the fact that it affects uh, people who are from different uh, races and ethnicities, it affects people in different ways who may have maybe neurodivergent, have a disability, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So everybody's experience is entirely different, and I think that's really important to remember. But the more we normalize the conversation, the easier it will be. But I do think that educating the people who are in receipt of the conversation is important. So GPs, line managers, uh, whatever that looks like, because it's great that we take away the taboo and we feel comfortable talking about menstrual health, you know, endometriosis, fertility, et cetera, et cetera. But if the people that are then in receipt of that conversation are not equipped to handle that, the conversation gets shut down and actually it makes it worse than it was before. So yeah, that education it, piece yeah. is so important. It is and, and it's it's I've just had a
0: stark realization that um I've got two sons and a daughter actually, but my lads know what the menopause is um you know from a scientific point of view and the kind of and supporting me point of view I didn't know what it was really until I was 41 and when when I was diagnosed yes, exactly they know more now at, at 13
1: and 14 than I, I knew and I had it it's crazy isn't it never thought when, that I, when I went for my hysterectomy they said to me just and I'm not joking just as a throwaway comment when I was leaving the hospital they didn't even tell me before you might go into uh, menopause straight away And I I said, how will I know? And he said, oh, you'll know. And that was it. And I'd never even thought about what the implication of having that hysterectomy was. I mean, really, I, I felt like I had no choice anyway, but we just didn't. And that's only in 2015. We just didn't talk about it. And when I went back to work, everybody knew, you know, didn't even asked me why I've been off. It was just that I have six weeks off and oh, Helen's out of the business for six weeks. Nobody said to me, how did how did your hysterectomy go? It's not like saying, now is your holiday, was it really? But um, but yeah, abs- we just didn't talk about it. And that's not that long ago. So yeah, th- that education piece, and I speak to lots of women whose children are far better educated than than almost they are in our organisation. I have much younger male colleagues coming up to me and asking me questions. I had a new starter not that long ago in the business, not working for me, but he wanted to come and ask me some questions about his role in social media and our strategy. And after we'd had that conversation, he said to me, can I just ask you a question? And I said, yeah. He said, did you have really heavy periods when you were Perimenopausal. I mean, I'd never met this guy before, but he felt it was okay to ask me that. Obviously, I'd have not been doing this role. I don't think he would have done. But and he asked me because his wife um, had endometriosis and she was really, really struggling. But I think that's incredible that somebody feels that they can just—that would never have happened. So I think you know we're definitely going in the right direction.
2: What would you like to see happen at government and employer levels moving forward?
1: I would like to see um, that more and more employers are looking at how they can build in women's health into their retention strategy, into their EDI strategy, and look at the business benefits of retaining women in the workplace and attracting women back into the workplace. Um, government are doing a lot of work around uh, the 50 plus programme, um, which naturally I've just, I did a workshop a couple of weeks ago with all of their 50 plus champions on uh, menopause um, and returning to work in midlife. So I think that's really important that we think about getting as many people back into the workplace as possible and breaking down that potential barrier. Um, But retaining the talent, experience and um, mentorship of women in the workplace is, is really important. So I would like to see that over time we do that through the work that we're doing, sharing best practice and supporting women through midlife.
0: Ellen, you've been an absolutely phenomenal guest and and, and the conversation started uh, a couple of years ago and um, the conversations we're having this year in this podcast for World Menopause Day seem to have the theme of actions speak louder than words now. So the conversation has started But actions have been started to put into place and um, hopefully it's going to make a massive difference to um, women and and society. Thank you so much.
1: Absolute pleasure. And it's been really, really lovely to talk to you both and lovely to meet you, Chanel.
2: And you.